0: This morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. It's God the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand His Word, but we still need to exercise our little gray cells and think about what we are studying, concentrate, focus. And under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we may not always understand everything the first time we hear it, but it is understandable. And as we continue our study of the Word, more and more will become clear to us, and it will be profitable for our spiritual growth. So we have to be in fellowship, a few moments of silent prayer, in case anyone needs to use 1 John 1.9 to make sure we're in fellowship. If we confess our sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word illuminates our thinking. It not only teaches us about who you are, but about who we are, and it addresses every issue in life. It is in your light that we see light, and it is your word that is infallible and inerrant, and it is your word that we use to advance in our spiritual growth. It is your word that is the highest priority in our life, and it is the study of your word that is the highest form of worship. So now as we worship you and fellowship around the teaching of your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we would have the spiritual courage to respond to the teaching of your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Last time we began our study of... Uh, Samson, or really two weeks ago we began the study of Samson, and last time we came to Judges 13.5, and in Judges 13.5 and the following verses, where the angel of the Lord has appeared to the mother of Samson, she is uh, informed about the fact that this child that she is already pregnant with, we saw that it's poorly translated in most versions as a perfect tense, I mean as as a future tense. In the Hebrew, it is a perfect tense and should be understood in the sense that she has already conceived and that she is already pregnant and that she is going to have a child, and this child is going to be a Nazarite. And we looked at that last time and saw that in the Nazarite vow, it was a voluntary vow that was taken for a temporary period of time. With Samson, it is going to be different. Samson is not a voluntary vow vow. God is imposing the vow on him, and it will be for the duration of his life, from birth to death. But, uniquely, his mother is told that she too must follow at least a portion of that vow. There were three things that were part of the Nazaritic vow. Number one, they were not, to, not only to avoid drinking any wine, they were not to have any any contact with the fruit of the vine at all. No grapes, no grape juice. If uh, they were near, and remember, Samson's near a, a culture that's influenced by the Greeks, so uh, they couldn't have any Greek, Greek leaves. You know, the Greeks are always wrapping something up in Greek leaves, so they couldn't eat that. They couldn't have anything to do with, with grapes. Secondly, they, the, it, it seems to be a vow. I can't find where it applied to women. A vow that was specifically for the male, And they were not to cut the hair of their head at all. And that was the outward visible sign that they had taken the Nazaritic vow. And then the third thing, third aspect of the vow, they were not to have contact with anything that was dead. Of course, that was also part of the dietary law of the Mosaic covenant, which forbade eating of certain foods. And if you do a study of the foods that are forbidden, it doesn't have anything to do with health. Every now and then you're going to run into somebody who's going to say they have some great diet for you, and we're going to base it on the Mosaic Law, and that's why the Jews had that diet is because, of course, they, they didn't know how to adequately prepare these foods, and um, it wasn't until later that they could eat them and they try to make the whole thing hygienic, but that's false because uh, made, everything's made clean and declared clean and that Believers in the church age can eat anything, no dietary restrictions when uh, in, in Acts chapter 10, with the vision God gave to Peter, where he informed was informing him of the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. And of course, he didn't instruct Peter at that time that now you have to cook pork until it's uh, at least medium well in order to kill all of the bacteria. You don't need to cook other foods to any you know, there was no change in the way in which they prepared food. There was no scientific advancement. it was clearly an issue of spiritual truth. And what God was teaching through the dietary law was that death was the result of sin and that God could have nothing to do with sin. God is holy. And the word holy, even though it's a rather antiquated term and overused in a lot of of religious verbiage, and not everybody knows what holy means. It comes from the Hebrew word kadash, which means set apart. And it emphasizes the uniqueness and distinctness of God and that God cannot have anything to do with sin. And so what God was teaching through this, this physical training aid of the dietary law was that if you t- ate anything that was uh, a scavenger, that had something to do with death, then that made you ceremonially unclean. It's not that it was a sin, but it made you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and you had to uh, s- perform certain sacrifices of the Levitical sacrifices, before you were cleansed and could go into the temple. And the whole point was to train people to think in terms of how pervasive sin was and how it affected everything. And so this is a really a visual aid. The Nazarite is a visual aid that his, his focus is on God. Uh, the psalmist tells us that God gave wine for the joy of man's soul. And the word for wine there is not grape juice. It is wine, and it was an alcoholic beverage, and so clearly God recognizes that there is a validity to drinking alcoholic beverages. It's not, its drunkenness that's forbidden by Scripture. Not enjoying wine or beer or whatever uh, you might enjoy. It is not getting to the avoiding getting to the point where your rational faculties and your volition is impaired to any degree by that so it is temperance it is not abstinence but the Nazarite was to abstain to show as a visible expression that his joy his happiness was based exclusively on God and so there was a uh, this unique facet to the vow of the Nazarite now when the woman comes or when the angel of the Lord comes to the woman we don't know her name just the mother of the mother of Samson, she's told to that she too is to avoid uh, drinking wine herself and not to eat anything unclean because of the child that is in her womb. And then we come to verse 5 which states, For behold, you shall conceive, and that should be translated, you have conceived and will give birth to a son, No razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So we raised the question last time, because this question should occur to people who are reading this text, especially in light of the tremendous controversy that has been going on in this nation ever since the uh, Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, What exactly is the value of human life and what is the value of life in the womb? And what exactly is the life in the womb? And how should that affect decisions that are made, legislative decisions and judicial decisions? Is is abortion legitimate, illegitimate? Is it simply a moral or spiritual issue or is it a criminal issue? And these questions, of course, have become litmus tests for almost orthodoxy in Christianity, conservative Christianity, in some cases even uh, conservative politics. And yet what happens more often than not, uh, about 99.9% of the time, is you get a lot of heat, and not a whole lot of light, when discussing this. And yet as believers we need to recognize that God addresses every important issue in life. And the scripture tells us that it is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness, of spiritual life. And so it is going to give us insight, truth, about what is going on inside the womb and what our position as believers should be. And there is clarity there. It is not dark. In the second hour, we're going to look at issues related to inerrancy and infallibility. And one of the points is that God has communicated to be clear, not to be unclear. He has communicated to be perceived and not to to confuse man. And yet what we find in this area is, is a lot of confusion. This last week I was reading through a contemporary uh, volume on systematic theology, one that is uh, popular today, came out in the 80s, and has become a major textbook used in many seminaries today, most conservative seminaries. The author is considered an evangelical. He's, I would put him pretty much to the middle, to the left of whatever evangelical means. And in many cases, I, I don't care for the author myself because... In many cases, he says, well, these are the three options, and I'm not sure which one it is, but these are the strengths and weaknesses of each position. And he basically uh, bails out of a lot of of, uh, issues where he should be making decisions. Because the bottom line from all of that is that, well, isn't God clear? I mean, you're you're supposed to have a degree, a Ph.D., and you know the original languages, and you don't know what God's saying about this. And that's what he did in the the issue of when he was... just. in his in his section discussing the the nature of human life and origin of the soul, he goes through the historical positions as we will, and then he concludes by saying, you know, this, we really can't say that the scriptures are clear. The science really can't tell us when the soul is present. That's <laughs> not a factor of empirical data, and so uh, the only thing we can conclude is that uh, since abortion is wrong, uh, obviously life there must be full human life in the womb. See, he back-argued the position. And that's the kind of lousy logic you find in so many uh, treatments of this subject and certain things ignored on both sides of the issue. So we need to address what the Scripture says. And I began last time by looking at the, the Hebrew that is used here for the phrase, from the womb. And so our first point... Is that the, this is a technical prepositional phrase from the Hebrew men is the preposition plus the noun for womb beten. And here it is a full or plenary word, men ha beten, whereas normally what you find in the Hebrew is, it's a sort of a con, contraction where it is, the preposition is just joined directly to the noun and it comes across as me beten. And here the men, the preposition, has a local meaning indicating the point of departure and therefore means away from or from. It is not talking about inside the womb because that would be the preposition ba in the Hebrew which means in. So it is outside the womb. It's not talking about life in the womb. And the text here in Judges 13.5 is simply stating that the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth. Now, I want to review why I say it is from birth. And it's talking about him, that he's going to be a Nazarite to God from birth because the, the three mandates to be a Nazarite, dietary law, length of uncut hair, and um, not touching a dead body, all relate to his volition. And the reason it says from birth indicates that his volition isn't active in the womb. It's not activated until he is born. Prior to birth, there is a mandate to his mother. Now, why is that? At least what this is going to indicate, and what we're going to see by the time we get to the conclusion, is that God places a value on what's going on inside the womb in her life, and her abstinence from uh, wine from strong drink, which we saw last time, is the Hebrew word shakar, which, which means barley beer. And the fact that she had to give up wine and beer for the period of her pregnancy is to be a visible symbol that God is doing something special through her. It really doesn't say anything specifically about uh, whether or not there is full human life inside the womb. So the first point we looked at last time was the technical phrase that's used here. and and the second point is that this is this an idiom is it possible and there's one or at least one or two authors that I've read that say try to claim that Mibetan is an idiom for from conception but as I noted last time there is a Hebrew word herayon from the verb hara you have you have on the one hand a verb Hara, H A R A H, and then you have its noun, Hera Yon, H E R A Y O N, and this is the noun. This is the verb. Hara is the verb. When you have the word for birth, you have the verb, Yalad, Y A L A D, but there is no corresponding noun so my argument is that if you're talking about conception the Hebrew does have a word to state literally from conception you would say men harayon but if you're talking about from birth there's no word the language is lexically impoverished at that point and there is no word literal noun for birth so you have to use an idiom and the idiom that they used was me and If you wanted to talk about birth, you used the phrase me betting. Now, there's a couple of things we need to understand here that I want to make sure everyone is clear on. First of all, this is a different, it's a number one, it's a flashpoint doctrine for some people. Sometimes when I teach what I teach, some people think it automatically justifies abortion, and it doesn't. That's a non sequitur, it's irrelevant. There have been many, many Christians over the years who've taken this identical position, and that was never an issue. It's just become such an emotional flashpoint over the last uh, 25 years or so that um, everybody jumps to illegitimate conclusions. Second thing I want to do is if, if you haven't been around very long and you haven't been a Christian for very long, you, and maybe some things that we're going to cover are a little difficult for you, that's okay. You have to follow the procedure when you're eating spiritual food. and all you can eat is, is oatmeal and cereal. Then you have to put the steak aside and just say, well, I'll come back to it and study that at a later time when I have a little better frame of reference and can understand it a little better, a little more clearly. Third point that we have to get to is to understand the basics of how God made man and the composition of mankind, of a human being. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where we see the mechanics of how God created Adam, the first man. There we read, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Now we must remember there are at least four different words in the Hebrew language to describe God's creative activity. There is the word barah, which is used only of God as the subject and expresses His divine creative activity. There is the word Asa. asa generally refers to making or doing. It's the more general word for making or manufacturing something. And then there is the verb yatsar. And yatsar is the word that is used of, uh, let's say, a potter forming an object on his potter's wheel. And it means to shape or to form an existing material. And so we read here that the Lord God formed man. It's not bara, it's not asa, it's talking about the physical formation of his body. That he formed man from the dust from the ground. That means he used the chemicals in the soil to produce the human body. And that's what he's talking about here is the material part of man. That there is a distinction in man between a material body and an immaterial If man was simply material, if everything were, were material, then when man died, there would be nothing to go to heaven. But Scripture says that at the instant of death, we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. And that indicates that the soul is distinct from the body, as well as many, many other passages. And this being the first one. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. And so that forms his biological life. This is the formation of his physical body, and everything necessary. So he is at that point. You have biological life, and of course, the, the, the text doesn't go into it. Doesn't go into the fact that there is cell life, and there is, is all there are all kinds of things going on at the cellular level on the body. This even happens after death. The souls departed to go to heaven. And you know there are certain cell, cell things are still going on. There are still certain reflexes that uh, they diminish rather rapidly after death. Some continue much longer, year, two years down the road. Your carcass is still going to be growing hair and fingernails and toenails. And uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes after death, somebody can can tap your knee with a little hammer and you're still going to get a muscular reflex. There is still... Cell life, even though the soul is no longer there. Even though the uh, brain wave is flat, and the heart rate is flat, there is still life at a cellular level, and it gradually over time, or in some cases more rapidly, that life at the cellular level begins to dissipate and disappear. So there's a distinction between. that must be made between biological life and biological activity and soul life. And that's the second part of the verse. It says that God formed man of the dust from the ground. That is related to the body. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Hebrew word there is neshama for the breath of life. God breathed nafach, the breath of life, neshama, into him. It is that breath that imparted to the physical body of biological life the immaterial soul of Adam. And it was only at that point where you had biological life united with soul life that you had real human life. When there was just a body and no soul there, there's no full human life there. It's potential human life, and it's important because it's potential human life. It's not just a mass of cells. It was important because of what it was designed to be. God had not completed the task yet, but once the soul was parted to the body, then man became a living being. It wasn't until you had the unity of biological life plus soul life that you had human life. And that is what makes true humanity. And until you have both elements present there is no human life so we start off with biological life plus human life i mean plus soul life and that equals human life now let's look at some other passages that teach this distinction between the soul and the body between the immaterial part of man and the material part of man for example in isaiah 10:18 we read, and he will destroy the glory of his forest and his fruitful garden. And that the glory of his forest and fruitful garden refers to mankind. He will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. They are viewed as distinct elements. Both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then another passage is in Genesis 35:18. There we read, it came about as her soul was departing. This is talking about the the um, uh, death of Rachel. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died. So that is indicates that her when her soul left the physical body, when soul life departed, biological life, that is when death occurred. When her soul departed, that's when Rachel named uh, Benjamin. A threefold division is stated in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to get diverted and run down a rabbit trail on uh, the makeup of man, but there are two views on the makeup of man. One's called dichotomy, and the other's called trichotomy. A true dichotomist, in it's, theologically accepted use of the term believes that man is made up of two elements material and immaterial and that the, all of the different facets that are mentioned in the Bible from the mentality, the heart, the soul, the spirit are all just different aspects of the of the, of the uh, immaterial and they all blend together and that's as far as those folks want to press things. Now trichotomist is a second position and trichotomy teaches that man is made up of three parts three components a body a soul and a spirit and then in some passages these words are used in a very technical sense and they are here in 1st Thessalonians 5.23 as they are in Hebrews 4.12 the word of God is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to dividing the body and the soul from the spirit in these verses Hebrews 4.12 and 1st Thessalonians 5.23 the Bible makes a clear distinction between the soul and the soul and the spirit furthermore in jude 1:19 we read these are the ones talking about the false teachers false prophets and they were unbelievers these are the ones who caused divisions and then it's a horrible translation worldly minded it's not worldly minded that's kosmos in the greek it's sukikos here not kosmos and sukikos means soulish and then you have an appositional phrase which defines what psuchikos means. And it's, again, an interpreted translation in the New American Standard, devoid of the Spirit and the capitalized Spirit. And that is an interpretive decision by the translator. But psuchikos means soulish, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, we're told that the Sukikas man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. And there we again see that the unbeliever is called sukikos And he can't understand the Word of God because there's some portion of him, something in his makeup that's missing. He's he's soulish, he's not spiritual. In other words, Jude tells us he's devoid of the Spirit. And literally it means not having spirit and should be lowercase s referring to the human spirit. And so the position that we have here, we teach here at Preston City Bible Church, is that... Man was originally created in the garden with a material body and an immaterial soul and spirit. The soul is comprised of his mentality, his emotion, his volition, his conscience, and that comprises the image of God. And that was linked together with a human spirit, and it was that human spirit that enabled man, the creature, to have a relationship with God and to understand doctrine. But at the point of spiritual death, when Adam disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he lost that human spirit. He died spiritually. That's what spiritual death means. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't have a human spirit. And at regeneration, something is born again. And see, this is a problem with the dichotomous, is he doesn't really want to make this distinction between soul and spirit. He... He'll go to passages like the one we looked at the other night in Daniel and Daniel 2.1 that the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. And there are other passages that talk about the spirit, ruach, the spirit of Pharaoh was troubled. And that's just a generic, non-technical use of the word ruach to refer to the immaterial part of man. We do that all the time in everyday conversation. Sometimes we talk about... Uh, 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 even in a, within a paragraph we will use the same word in a technical and in a non-technical uh, general sense and the scripture does the same thing as well and you can't run around and every time you see the word spirit impose a technical definition on it and some people do that we saw that just now in the translation in Jude 19 that some translators every time they, they uh, see the word spirit they have this knee-jerk reaction they want to translate it with a capital S and they don't do and bring enough theology and background to the text to correctly and properly interpret it. So what we've learned in this fourth, uh, or in this subpoint here, point number five, uh, three, is that the soul is distinct from the body. Isaiah 10:18. The soul departs the body at death. And third, the soul is part of two aspects, two immaterial aspects of humanity. And man is born with, without a human spirit and he acquires a human spirit. He's given a human spirit by God at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. At the point that man, put, anyone puts their faith in Jesus Christ and accepts Christ as Savior, they are regenerated and God the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts that human spirit to you as a believer. And that now gives you the ability, the potential, to be able to understand Bible doctrine, to be able to understand the Scriptures so that it now can make sense to you, uh, especially under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So that leads us to point number four. Point number four is what we've stated already, and that is that human life then, full human life, is the joining of biological life with soul life the question then becomes when does that occur at what point in time does that occur does that occur at conception does that occur somewhere between conception and birth does it occur (coughs) at birth furthermore is it transmitted through procreation or is is the soul a special act of God each and every time those are the questions that must be addressed Is the soul a special creation of God that's imparted at birth or at conception or sometime in between? Or is the soul physically transmitted through the act of procreation? With Adam, we see that that the soul life was created and, and imparted to his biological life almost at the instant that God created the biological life. There wasn't much of a time differential, but then... Adam's human body did not have to go through the normal growth process and the normal nine-month gestation period. So we need to ask, is this a one-time event where breath comes only to Adam and consequently after that for every other person, it comes at uh, the soul, just is transmitted either through procreation or given at conception. Well, we'll, a couple of passages clarify this. Ecclesiastes 12.7 talks about death and the death of a human being, then the dust, that is the physical body, the dust will return to the earth as it was. See, we were formed from the dust of the ground, the chemicals of the soil. And Ecclesiastes says, then at death the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And there that is a non-technical use of spirit. It's talking about the immaterial part of man. See, spirit means breath, wind, it means uh, sometimes it means thinking, sometimes it 's almost used synonymously with the soul, but here it just refers to the immaterial part of man. This is the Old Testament equivalent of paul's statement, absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. The spirit will come will return to God who gave it. now notice that God is the one who gives the spirit it 's not God who gives the body in this verse, and we want to make that distinction because what what happens in The process is that with Adam, God initiated two procedures. Biological life was created and given the ability to procreate and replicate physically. God is still involved in the process, but in an indirect supervisory manner. And we're going to see that that's not purely passive at all. So, just because it's indirect or what is also called mediate doesn't mean it's passive and it's sort of almost like a deistic idea of God that, you know, it's just God just lets nature take its course. He is involved and that's part of what we're seeing with the dynamic and with, uh, with Samson. Soul life, on the other hand, comes from God according to Ecclesiastes 12.7. And that soul life comes from God indicates that God is directly or immediately involved in the creation of each and every human soul. Other passages support this. For example, in Job 33, verse 4, Job says, The Spirit of God has made me, Asa, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So Job recognizes that it is when he breathed his first at Neshema, that's the Hebrew word translated breath here, it's the same word that we see, that we saw in Genesis 2-7, that when God breathed into Adam, he became a living being. So Job recognizes the fact that it is Neshema that gave him life. And at that point, He became a living body. He became full humanity. Again, we read in Isaiah 42, verse 5, that says, "...God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it." And there we see it is God directly providing neshama, breath, to people on it. So there is a distinction and then in parallelism and those of you who went through the Old Testament intro course last year when I talked about poetry we have synonymous parallelism here with the spirit to those who walk in it again spirit is a general use of the word ruach referring to the immaterial part of man that God is the one who gives that to man it is not your parents who gave you that they gave you your physical body. They didn't give you the Neshema, the breath, the soul life. That came from God. And that's what these passages stress over and over again is God is the one who directly imparts that through breath. And the first breath that a baby takes after birth is when he inhales through Neshema inhales his soul. And it's at that point that full human life Is present. It's at that point that the material biological life is joined with the immaterial soul life. Now, there's always been a level of controversy. There's always been a level of controversy over this among theologians. And there are three positions that have been taught throughout the history of Christianity on the origin of the soul. The first is heretical and non-biblical, but in the early church it was taught by some because they were influenced by the philosophy of Plato. And that is called the pre-existence of the soul. We're not going to spend any time on that because there's no biblical support at all. And when we talk about creation of the soul and impartation at birth, there's no time gap between the creation of the soul and its impartation to the body at birth the soul did not exist a minute, two minutes, five minutes, five years, ten years, five centuries before it was joined to the body. It is simultaneously created and imparted to the body. So there is no pre-existence of the soul. That is a pagan doctrine. The second view is a view called Traditionism. Traditionism was first articulated by a church early church father by the name of Tertullian. And Tertullian lived from 160 to 225 A.D. Tertullian is most widely known because he's the one who coined the word Trinitas in the Latin for Trinity. Uh, Tertullian also held to a view that the soul was material. And so he taught that the soul was transmitted through physical procreation, which would make sense if the soul is material, then it is transmitted physically. So that was the first position. The other position, also documented early in the uh, church, is the view of creationism. And that is the view that I am teaching, that each soul is immediately created by God, the body is immediately created and imparted, and the body is produced through the physical act of procreation. Now, the thing is that we need to recognize the dominance of creationism. A hundred years ago, uh, W.G.T. Shedd, who was a traditionist, argued against creationism, but he commented that at that time the majority of theologians were creationists. Now that shocks a lot of conservative evangelicals today because they think that creationism means, they just automatically think that means you're pro-abortion. And so they just think, they, they can't accept this. But men like John Calvin, Charles Hodge, who was head of the theology department at Princeton and among the Princeton theologians was, was among those who fought off liberalism and crafted helped to craft our current understanding of inerrancy and infallibility. A contemporary theologian, 20th century conservatives like Louis Berkhof, as well, Martin, uh, Martin Luther, Jerome, and Aquinas all held to creationist positions. Aquinas, Jerome, these are great, quote, saints, unquote, in the Roman Catholic hierarchy of saints. Aquinas is considered the greatest theologian by Roman Catholics. And Aquinas states in his Summa Theologica that it is heresy. Notice that. He didn't mince words. It is heresy to think that the soul is transmitted through the semen. That is a strong statement. You won't find too many Roman Catholics or pro-lifers who are aware of that. I'm just Want you to understand that there has always been this this level of controversy. And does anybody need to go build an ark? It seems like it's really raining out there, but at least we're not in Houston. Somebody sent me some pictures of Houston this last week with their their flood, and I'm just amazed. Some of the freeways in Houston run run low instead of overpasses over the cross streets. They run. The freeways were dug down and they run low, and all the cross streets are bridges going over the freeway, and the freeways were became canals, and the river and the the, the water flowing down uh, Interstate 10 and Interstate 45 came to within about two feet of the bridges going over them, and tankers, oil tankers, and trucks were just floating down the freeway, and in and in and amongst the tankers and the trucks were the adventurers out there on their on their uh, Jet skis, jet skiing up and down the freeway. So, but it had a ruinous effect. It wiped out um, and it wiped out the theater district. It got it flooded the basements of, of all the theaters and wiped out all their props, scores, musical instruments, costumes, everything. Just just a real tragedy, not just and uh, as well as in terms of just the human uh, loss of everything. But I don't think we're going to see that this morning, even though it's beginning to rain so hard. We probably can hear it over the tape. Okay, back to our subject. The technical terminology now, this is point seven. Point six, introduce the two or the three categories, theologically, of the origin of the soul. Seventh, let's look at technical terminology and how it is used throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Job 1.21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. That's mibeton again. And naked I shall return there. Not literally to the womb, but he will return to the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice, if notice mibeton means from birth. The parameters of life here are from birth to death. Over and over again, we're going to see the Bible indicate that the parameters of human life are not from conception. See, Job had a word. He could have said me Harion, but he doesn't. He says me beton. He doesn't say from conception, he says from birth. Job 311 he says, why did I not die at birth? He doesn't say why was I not aborted? Why was didn't my mother miscarry? Why didn't why did I was I even conceived? He says, why did I not die at birth? at birth and come forth from the womb and expire so he recognizes in that statement that he wasn't a full human the soul was not present in the womb Job 10.9 remember now that thou hast made me as clay that's the biological life and wouldst thou turn me into dust again That's referring simply to the biological life that's not talking about the soul life Psalm 22.9, Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb, from birth. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. It's talking about life outside the womb. Psalm 22.10, Upon thee I was cast from birth. Not in the womb, but from birth. And notice there, the uh, translator in the New American Standard translates me betten as an idiom for from birth, not from the womb. But that's what it literally says in the Hebrew. But it is from birth. Then so, then it reads, those who speak lies go astray from birth. If there was conception, there would be an active sin nature inside the womb. But they would go astray from birth because that's when the soul life enters and that's when the sin nature is activated. Point number eight then. Birth and death are the... Birth and death are the... Biblical parameters for life. Over and over and over again. And I never hear anybody address this. Ecclesiastes three two, A time to give birth and a time to die. It doesn't say a time to conceive and a time to die. It says a time to give birth and a time to die. Isaiah 9.6 For a child will be born to us. Not a child will be conceived for us, but a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Matthew 11.11 11. Truly I say to you, among of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Not among those who are conceived, but those who are born among women. Luke 2.10 and 11. And the angel said to them, this is the announcement to the shepherds at the time of Jesus' birth, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, for which, shall be for, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There wasn't an angelic announcement to the world of conception, but at birth. Job 15.14 What is man that he should be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Job 38.21 You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Job 10.18 Why then hast thou brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no, I had seen me. Why was I born? Job 10.19 10, I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb, embedded from birth, from womb to tomb, from birth to death. That's the parameters in the scripture, not from conception. Well, that leads us to then point number 10 nevertheless life that is biological life in the womb has significance and value as God's indirect creation this doesn't mean that what is going on in the womb is simply a mass of cells this is not simply a mass of cells this is not simply a tumor this is not just a, a, a it is potential human life And so, you can't go along with the argument of the uh, pro-abortion crowd that it's nothing more than a meaningless mass of cells like a ward or like a tumor or something else that you just want to excise. There is something of significance and value there. For example, in Job 10.8, we read, Thy hands fashioned and made me altogether, and wouldst thou destroy me? And it's talking there using an anthropomorphism for God's hands, talking about God's involvement in the physical process. Remember now that thou hast made me as clay. See, God is indirectly involved because God's not involved directly in procreation. God uses the means of physical human procreation to form the biological life. But God is involved in the process. And this is a tremendous comfort to people. This is something you never hear. Remember in John six no John nine, when Jesus Heals the blind man. And he comes to the blind man outside the temple, and the disciples said, Who sinned, this man or his parents? And at this point, we're going to get a profound understanding of divine involvement in the formation of our physical life. They were so, the, the, the Jew, Jewish thinking at that time was any kind of birth defect like this was a result of this person's sin or the parents' sin. And Jesus' response is, Neither. He was born this way for the glory of God. In other words God was physic- was involved directly in the formation of this man's biological life such that he was born blind with this physical defect so that God could get glorified. Now that's a profound thought because when people are born with birth defects or with physical handicaps and they say why did you God did you make me that way it's for God's glory because through that limitation God the potential is that God is going to glorify be glorified if that individual applies doctrine to the situation and overcomes that physical handicap, that test, through the use of doctrine. So we see here that even this builds our understanding of the fact that we can't come along and say, oh, there's going to be some birth defect, so let's abort the baby. Uh, Just think of what would have happened with that um, syphilitic mother who gave birth to Ludwig van Beethoven. If somebody said, well, you're going to have a child that's going to be born with defects, and you're obviously sick, so let's just go ahead and have an abortion. See, that's human reasoning, but the Scripture is saying God's involved in the process. Psalm 139 is a passage everybody goes to to try to prove that there's full human life in the womb, but it can't be used for that. Psalm 139.13 says, For thou didst form my inward parts. Inward parts is not talking about the soul. Inward parts is talking about the internal organs. It's talking about how God is involved in the process of developing every aspect of biological life. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. That's parallelism. And it's talking about how God is involved in the process of forming biological life. It is not that it is just a mass of biological cells. Uh, Psalm 139.14 I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Because of what God did in the womb in forming biological life, there's no mention of the soul here, David now gives thanks to God because of what he has physically, because of his biological life. He says, Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. Verse 15 my frame, that is the physical body, biological life, my frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. The days were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So it's talking about even in the womb, God had a plan for David, and that plan included imparting a soul to that biological life. But first, the biological life had to be formed as the home for the soul, and then at birth, the soul would be imparted to it. Conclusion, therefore, is physical, biological life is so significant that God instructs Samson's mother that just as in his physical life, he is to be manifest as a Nazarite, so she must not defile him or herself even when his body is in the womb. There is value to the human body in the womb. It's not just a mass of cells. There's something valid there. Now, let's stop and talk about the implications of this in terms of of social law. First of all, I want you to remember that in the history of Christianity, up until, you know, someone might say, up until the present time, and believe me, if you read the the scholarly literature... uh, by some evangelicals like the theologian I mentioned earlier it's, there's not even consensus today but some would try to argue that there is and there's probably greater consensus today because of the reaction to Roe versus Wade back in when was that 73 but throughout the history of the church there has always been a tremendous disagreement about just when the soul and the body are united and they argue from scriptures now if and I'm just using this as an argument if assuming it's true that the scriptures are just unclear, if we can't know from Scripture when the soul is united to the body, then how and we can't know from science when the soul is united to the body, then how in the world can we legislate laws making abortion murder and criminal? Now my argument is that unbelievers are never held accountable to spiritual truth that is discernible only from direct revelation of God. Unbelievers are never held accountable to any mandate in Scripture that is discernible only by revelation of God. Why is that? In 1 Corinthians two 14, we're told that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. The things of the spiritual God refer... Well, let's turn there. This is an important passage. And it's important for understanding how we learn doctrine as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's start at verse 9, so we pick up the context. But as it is written, and here we have a quote. Here we have a quote from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 64, 4. I has not seen, nor ear heard. That's empiricism, what is discoverable and learnable through the senses. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. That's rationalism, the mind of man. I has not seen or ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things. And here we have a neuter plural of a relative pronoun, the things, which God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, what are things? Well, in context, the things are doctrines. That which is revealed by God. It is saying in this quote that rationalism can't get there. It hasn't entered into the heart of man, the mind of man. Empiricism can't discover these truths eye has not seen, or ear heard, the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. So, revelation comes through the Spirit of God. And they have been revealed to whom? To us. Who's us? Us is believers. It is not believer and unbeliever. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things... Yes, the deep things of God. And the things, once again, refers to doctrine. It's got to go back on a relative pronoun. You have to go back to its antecedents. So, the things here is talking about doctrine. The Spirit searches. The Spirit exposes all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, here we have... There's at least three different meanings to the word pneuma, translated spirit, in this passage. What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? This is like a proverbial statement in saying, man only a man can know what's inside of him, only his immaterial soul, and their spirit almost means soul. And Paul uses it that way in parallelism because he's bringing out the aspect of the Spirit of God, that no one knows the things of God, no one knows that is the thinking, the doctrines, the ideas of God, except for the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's domain for revelation. Verse 12, Now we have received, not the Spirit, that here it means attitude or thinking. See, Spirit pneuma doesn't mean the same thing every time you read it. Within this verse, from clause to clause, Paul shifts the meaning. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, that is, the attitude or the thinking of the cosmic system, but the spirit, capital S, the spirit who is from God. Now, King James translates that with a capital S, but this should be a small s. And I don't have time to go into the exegesis of this passage, but everywhere else that we have the Holy Spirit mentioned here, pneuma is in the genitive case. The Spirit of God. Spirit of God. I mean, Thaos is in the the genitive case. But we have Spirit of God, uh, Numa Theu. But here we have a distinct change. It is the Numa to Theu. It's the only time Spirit is used in this whole section where you have a prepositional phrase defining the ultimate source of God. The Spirit from God is not the Holy Spirit here. It is the human Spirit but we have received the human spirit who is from God. Paul makes a precise distinction when he uses spirit here. He could have said numetheu, and it would mean the same thing, spirit of God, but everywhere else he uses numetheu in this passage, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But we have received the human spirit. That's what enables us to understand doctrine. We have received the human spirit who is from God that we might know the thing. See, if that's Holy Spirit, then Old Testament believers who never received the Holy Spirit wouldn't be able to understand the revelation of God. Let me make that clear again. I thought I'd go right past half of you. If this is how you have to think exegetically when you go through a passage. If this is talking about when it's talking about the Spirit who is from God, if that's the Holy Spirit and the reason we receive that is to know the things, which is revelation in this passage, doctrine, to know the things that have been freely given to us from God. If that Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and He's given to understand the Word. Now, the Holy Spirit is given to understand the Word, but if, it's, if that's what this is talking about, then the Old Testament saint who did not have a Holy Spirit could not understand doctrine. But he did receive the human spirit, And it's the human spirit that is that portion of man's immaterial makeup that enables him to have a relationship with God and to understand Bible doctrine. So, therefore, it can't be the Holy Spirit because that would leave out the entire Old Testament rank and file of believers. And it must refer to the human spirit from God that we believers might know the things, Bible doctrine... "...which have been freely given to us by God." Notice, it's very important. We're going to get to a, passage, a verse in a minute. And if you don't understand that things refers to doctrine revealed in the Scriptures, you'll really get, get confused. He says, these things... What's that? Things. It's doctrine. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. And here it's uh, Holy Spirit, clearly. And the Holy Spirit teaches doctrine to the apostles, and then they communicate. That's a process of revelation comparing spiritual things with spiritual spiritual concepts with spiritual words so that's the process of building a frame of reference and developing doctrines but verse 14 but the natural man that is the sukikos man the unsaved man who just has a soul and no human spirit see if this is holy spirit then you get into real problems when you try to apply any of this to old testament saints the natural man the soulish man does not receive the things "...of the Spirit of God." That is, the things, the doctrines that are revealed by the Holy Spirit. "...for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." They're discerned through a human spirit. So the unbeliever can't understand these things. So we're going to pass legislation at a national level based on something that is discernible only by revelation under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and available to believers only? That's absurd! That's absurd! That is absolutely fallacious. You never make law on the basis of something that's discernible to Christians from revelation alone. And then verse fifteen: But he who is spiritual, that is the person who is born again and has the Holy Spirit, judges—that is, evaluates or is able to uh, understand all things. Now, what does all things mean? See, everybody reads this and go, "Well, now that I'm a believer, I can I can discern all things." Out there. But that's not what it's talking about. All things refers to what in this passage? We've seen it every verse. It goes all the way back to verse 9. The all things refers to doctrine. And what that is saying is that the person who is spiritual, that is born again and has a human spirit, can understand everything in the Scripture. It's not dependent upon your human IQ. It's not dependent upon your education level. It's not dependent on your cultural background. It's dependent on being regenerated, having a human spirit, and then walking... Under, or by means of God the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, For he who has known the mind of the Lord, that's Bible doctrine, that he, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. This is the Word of God. It is the very thinking of Jesus Christ. How do you know what God is like and what Christ is like? Study your Bible. That is the source. So, what we learn from this is that in this whole issue of the value of human life, by teaching creationism we are not diminishing the value of life in the womb in fact it emphasizes the value of life in the womb but it recognizes that full human life is not in the womb only biological life but that biological life is not insignificant or irrelevant or just a biological mass it is potential human life and for that perfe- per and for that reason it must be treated with with respect and with value and a mother that is uh, expecting a child should, should watch her diet and take care of herself and all of those things that are involved with making sure she has a healthy child and that unless there is some extremely good reason for stopping that pregnancy, no one should interfere with the normal process that God has set in motion but abortion therefore would not be murder it is immoral, perhaps, in many cases. It is sin, perhaps, in many cases. I'm not going to get into the details of when it is and when it isn't. But it is not murder. And so, Samuel, Samson's mother is instructed to take particular care because of what God is going to do through her son. And she is to follow the same dietary laws, not because of what it's going to do to what's in her womb, but because she too is a visible sign to the nation Israel that God is doing something to deliver the nation, and so she too must be set apart because of what God is doing in her womb. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study these things this morning and to understand with clarity what Your Word teaches. So often these things are taught in a confusing light today. and So much uh, argument, so much dissension over this that, We are thankful that your word is indeed clear and precise, and we are thankful that that it teaches us and upholds the value and sanctity of human life. Now, Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that this would be the opportunity to make that both sure and certain. This would be the opportunity for them to put their faith alone in Christ alone. In order to be saved, you don't have to... Uh, make a bargain with God, reform your life, or join a church, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we've studied today and that they would challenge our thinking. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.